0: Hey, before we dive in, I just want to tell those of you who are new here um, that the best next step for you to take is uh, called Start Here. It's a class that you can read about in the program, uh, just a three-week thing where we want to help uh, explain how we want to help you grow in your faith. So if you're new, make sure you check that out. Um, I see a lot of red here today. And uh, so I'm curious uh, if, if if the football games today impacted at all what you wore today. Would you please stand so we can just celebrate with you? Wow, wow, okay. I don't, great, you can sit down. I don't see any Patriots heretics, so we're good. We are, oh, Sean. You know, Sean, we're recording this. It'll be online if you'd like to leave. Um, you had a head start on the game. Uh, you know, we have been talking about idolatry a lot through judges, so... Um, I actually, my idolatry has kept me from wearing my jersey, my Peyton Manning jersey, because last time I wore it, we did not play competitively for one second of the game, so I'm not going to do that anymore, uh, but should be fun. Um, here's a picture of a glass with water in it. Is that half full or half empty? How many of you are half full people? How many of you are half empty? How many of you are like my friend, Tom, you're half empty and it's leaking fast. (laughs) Well, half empty and leaking fast is more the story of judges and that's what we've been looking at for these last three weeks. Uh, There's not a great deal of encouragement. Uh, If you ever listen to K-Love, you won't hear him talk about this because it's not positive or encouraging. (laughs) Um, It is dark and it is a downward spiral of difficulty. and because of that, there's an element of seriousness in a series like this, and we can joke and we can laugh, but, uh, but today is a bit surgical. Uh, today, I think there is something in each of our lives that God is trying to put his finger on to, hey, I want to I help you. I want to deal with that. And so there's going to be an element today that's a little bit, uh, especially in kind of the front half of our, of our study here this morning, that's a little heavy and that's a little reflective, um, but there's some great news. Uh, that we'll look at at the end. The key verse, if you just have, are joining us with this series, the key verse of the book of Judges is in chapter 17, 6, and it's the very last verse of the book, twenty one twenty five. It says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And we've said all along the way that uh, this is as relevant of a book as you could have because those words right there, I mean, those are as relevant today as when they were written a long, long time ago. We live in a culture, we live in a day, we live in a mindset that says, I can do what I want no one can tell me what to do I, I can do what's right to me and I have my truth and I have my my view on things and no one can tell me it's wrong and so this is a very relevant thing it's also a very relevant book because in the book of Judges you see that it's the people of God who are responsible for all the pain and all the difficulty and all the sin and so what you start to see is really uh, what the people of God look like when they're more influenced by the world around them than they are by the scriptures and they are by the story of the gospel. We've looked at this five part cycle of sin and you'll see the beginning parts of this here even today Uh, This happens over and over in this book of judges where the people sin they do what's evil in the eyes of the lord Uh, Because of that god in his mercy allows them to experience servitude That's the second part. They experience the pain the oppression of their rebellion against god He says hey if you want rebellion have it see how it feels and they don't like it very much which leads you to number three Supplication that word means help God, please do something. And so the people cry out to God for help in supplication. And then God brings salvation. He raises up a deliverer, somebody who uh, helps overthrow the oppressing enemy. And then there's a time last of silence where there's rest in the land. There's Sabbath. And that uh, whole cycle, that that rest lasts until uh, that deliverer dies. And then it all starts back over again. Well, we look today at uh, the first half of the story about Gideon. Gideon is one of these deliverers who God's going to use. Uh, We're going to look at his story this week and next week, because Gideon really is the longest section in the book of Judges, and it's also kind of a pivotal section. It's a turning section. Uh, Up to this point, it's been kind of bad as they've gone through this cycle. After Gideon, it's really bad. Um. And we'll see, how much role did Gideon have to play in that? How much did he not? That's some of what we'll look at more next week. Uh, But for this week, we're gonna look just at uh, 32 verses, the first 32 verses of chapter six. So this is actually one of the shorter sections we'll look at in this series. And uh, what I wanna do is just kinda go through the story, make sure we understand what happened, and then pull out some things that really, I think, can connect to where we are here today, all right? So uh, the first verse, chapter six, verse one, Here's the first part of our cycle. If we put the cycle back up, you can kind of track with this. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So that's the sin part. Secondly, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian, seven years. Now what uh, the author here is going to describe is this oppression, this servitude, this difficulty with Midian is actually the worst that the people have experienced thus far. You'll notice it keeps getting worse and worse and worse as if God's trying to get their attention, say, hey, wake up, come on. So it's described, verse two, and the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. Uh, By the way, Midian's not a person. This is a nation or a group of people nearby. Hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves that are in the strongholds. You understand? This was so bad that the people of Israel actually started going into hiding in the mountains because of this. What was so bad? Verse 3. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid waste to the land as they came in. So get what this is saying. This is not a one-time thing. This is saying they've been, uh, the people of Israel have been overcome by Midian, but now year after year, do you notice the language? They would encamp. They, they would do this. This kept happening year after year. Every time plants happen, every time harvest comes, the Midianites come over and they just take it all. The Israelites here experience just complete Economic disaster, verse 6. By the way, economic disaster seems to be the only thing that gets our attention. You ever notice that? Same thing here, verse 6. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. So there's your supplication. We have sin, servitude, supplication. They cry out for help. The question is are they really sorry? Are they really repentant, or are they just frustrated by their circumstances? Well, verse 7 gives us an interesting thing, if you think about the cycle, because you've had sin, servitude, supplication, you expect now salvation, right? You expect it to say, so the Lord raised up Gideon to deliver them. But that's not what it says. Look at verse 7. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. Huh? Huh? wait a minute. We need a a military guy. We don't need a preacher. What are they good for? (laughs) The Lord sent a prophet. Why? Why? Because the people don't really understand their real problem. They think their problem is economic. They think their problem is military. They think their problem is political. And God over and over in this book is saying, no, your problem is, is you've left me. So here's what the prophet says prophet says, listen, I led you out of Egypt. Verse eight, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you from Egypt. I brought you out of the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians, from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I'm the Lord, your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. He says, listen, here's the gospel, right? The gospel, that word means good news. What would the gospel be for these people? It would be the exodus. Hey, the prophet says, let me remind you of the gospel. You were enslaved, you were stuck, you were helpless, you were hopeless, you were in bondage in Egypt. And out of my grace and kindness and mercy, not because you deserved it, but just because I love you, I brought you out of there and I brought you into this land and now you don't need to be afraid. Don't you remember that story? Okay, well, what went wrong? He says at the end of verse 10, but you have not obeyed my voice. The prophet comes to say, listen, here's the problem. The problem isn't circumstantial. The problem isn't that God hasn't been faithful. The problem is that you have not obeyed his voice. Now, I'm not gonna go back into it, but if you read back at the beginning of chapter two, the beginning of chapter two, there's a very similar thing where God confronts the people, says, you didn't didn't obey me. There's a difference, though. In chapter 2, the people actually repent. They weep, and they sacrifice to God there. Here, nothing. Nothing. And so you expect verse 11 to say, therefore God decided to smite them. (laughs) But it doesn't. He's still merciful. It says in verse 11, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. So despite their lack of repentance, despite their lack of being really cut to the heart, despite the fact that they're just filled with regret over their circumstance, God still draws near. God still comes. And he finds Gideon, and we're gonna see throughout this story that Gideon is a very, in chapter six, a very afraid guy. He is timid, he's weak, he's insecure, he's insecure. He's not sure that God can do anything with him or use him. And the first indication of his fear you see in verse 11. When we find Gideon, he's beating out wheat in a wine press. Now, wheat was typically beat out on like kind of a, this would be actually a good place to beat wheat if you were on a kind of a hillside because you would would be able to beat and thresh the wheat out and the wind would be able to take it away. The problem with that is if you're there, everyone can see you. Right, So he's beating out the wheat in a wine press, in a, in a place where no one can see him. He's hiding, he's afraid. And it's there that God finds him. In verse 12, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And I wish you could just sort of, I wish you could hear the tone of voice. Was it like, the Lord is with you, mighty man of valor? That's who you really are. I see you as a mighty man of valor. Or was it like, the Lord's with you, mighty man of valor? Hiding from the Midianites? I don't know. But for sure, Gideon will be used in mighty ways. Verse 13, Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord's forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. Gideon says, What's the deal here? I thought God was for us. I've heard about Egypt. I've heard about all that stuff. Oh, yeah, but he didn't hear about that they had done evil. He's blaming God for their situation. Despite that, God is still merciful. Verse 14, and the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? He says, listen, Gideon, I know you're afraid. I know you don't understand it. I know you have doubts about God, but Listen, you're going to be part of the solution. You're going to be part of the deliverance. And in this story, this reminds you a lot of Moses, if you're familiar with that, when Moses came to the burning bush and God said, you're going to go to Egypt and say, let my people go. And Moses is like, but I stutter, I, I can't do that. And uh, so, so here's what he says, verse 15. He said to him, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. I'm the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you. And you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, if I have now found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it's you who speak with me. So Gideon's going, wow, that's an amazing promise. God, you're going to be with me. But I got to make sure that this is actually you. <laughs> I, 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 so, so this is so interesting. Gideon's a great example of he's heard some of the story, right? He's able to go, well, wait, wait, what about Egypt? But he also doesn't really recognize God's voice. He doesn't really recognize God's way. Somehow, his understanding of God has been clouded. But he says, God, show me. If this is really you, and again, he's not sure. If this is really you, then then show up. And so the next part of the story, Gideon goes into his house and he prepares a meal and he prepares some, some meat and some broth and the angel of the Lord tells him, hey, go put this on the rock and pour the broth over the, over the meal. And when that happens, it incinerates and the fire of heaven comes down and, and God shows up in an amazing way. And it says in verse 22, then Gideon perceived that, it was, that he was the angel of the Lord and Gideon said, alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the Lord Or or, or wait, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face, but the Lord said to him, peace be to you. Do not fear, you shall not die. And Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, the Lord is peace. So you have this situation, that's the first part of the story, and then you have the call of Gideon, which is Gideon being afraid and God saying, I'm going to be with you, I'm going to be with you, it's going to be okay, it's really me. And now you have the first thing that Gideon is called to do, the first way that Gideon is going to begin to act as a deliverer, rescuing the people of Israel. It says in verse 25, that night, the Lord said to him, take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it. And build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. Here's what God's saying. God's saying, listen, here's your first task if you want to help deliver Israel. Is we've got to get rid of the idolatry. That bale. Altar, it's coming down. And Baal, again, was the storm god. Baal was the, the god who made it rain, which, think about it. If all your crops are being de- devoured, how valuable is rain? How valuable is a healthy, like, you're going to do anything you can to just have some good crop that maybe you can protect from the Midianites. Maybe you can go in your wine cellar and, and protect it. And so you might hedge your bets. You might even say, you know what? We, we know the story about Egypt. We know the story about what God's done. But we're going to just hedge our bets. Maybe we ought to have an altar to Baal just in case. And Asherah, Asherah was like the female counterpart to Baal, that she was responsible for fertility. And so so God's saying, hey, Gideon, get rid of that stuff. Get rid of it. And in its place, construct an altar to me. Now, here's the amazing thing. Did you catch where that idol, altar, and pole are? Did you see where it is? take your father's bull and the second bull seven years old and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has. So this is at his dad's house. This is likely where Gideon has grown up, which begins to help you see, okay, he kind of worships the Lord, but he also has grown up worshiping Baal. And now he's called by God, hey, destroy that altar. And by the way, it's it's your dad's. that could be scary and he feels afraid. Verse 27, so Gideon took 10 men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. Now, uh, it's just another indication of Gideon's fear, right? And we're going to see that. We'll talk about that more even next week. And at the same time, praise God that he obeyed him. Right? Hasn't the whole problem been that the people of Israel are just willing to tolerate having both? And here, he actually does what God says. So, verse 28, the people are furious. If you pick up in verse 28, what you see is that the next morning all the townspeople, they see that this thing's been torn down. They see that there's this new altar in its place, and there's been a sacrifice to it, and they are murderously angry. It says in verse 30, uh, the men of the town said to Joash, that's Gideon's dad, bring out your son that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, will you contend for Baal or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he's a God, let him contend for himself because his altar has been broken down. So here you just see all this confusion, don't you see the spiritual confusion? The the, the dad of Gideon, whose altar has just been torn down, is now sticking up for Gideon, saying, "Well, if Baal were a real god, he could kill whoever tore it down." It's just all of this spiritual confusion. Do we worship? Do we worship Yahweh? Yeah. Do we worship Baal? Yeah. Do we know who God is? Kinda. It's very, very confusing. And yet it's in the midst of that that God sends Gideon to begin to rescue Israel. Now, that's where we're going to pick up the story next week. And we're going to look at Gideon's fleece. That's kind of a famous story. We'll look at some of the battles and some of those things. But for now, we've got this, uh, this prophet calling the people to repent. We've got this narrative, you know, kind of wooing Gideon along, come on, come on, boy, you can do it. Trust me, it'll be okay. And then you have Gideon's first mission. What do we learn from that? What what about any of that connects to us today? How can we maybe see some of our own situations in that story? Well, there's three things that we're gonna see. The first one is the surgical word of God. The surgical word of God. It's significant that when the people cry out for help, God doesn't immediately provide help, he provides his word. And his word says, here's the real problem. The real problem is a spiritual problem. The real problem is an idolatry problem. The real problem is that you are filled with regret, but not repentance. Right, We said back in chapter 2, they, they, they sacrificed, they repented here, nothing. You see that they're crying out for help is just going, God, I don't like my situation. I don't like, I don't like how much this hurts. I don't really want to change. I'm not really brokenhearted over my sin, but I don't like the circumstance. Do you realize there's a massive difference between regret and repentance? Second Corinthians talks about it as worldly sorrow versus godly sorrow, regret versus repentance. Tim Keller's a commentator on this and a pastor and he has a very helpful section in his commentary on Judges about the difference. Here's what he says. He says, regret is sorrow over the consequences of a sin but not over the sin itself. There's no sorrow over the sin for what it is in itself for how it grieves God and violates our relationship with him. The focus, this is in regret, is all horizontal, worldly, and not at all vertical, concerned about how it affects relationship with God. Therefore, as soon as the consequences go away, the behavior comes back. The heart has not become disgusted with the sin itself, so the sin remains rooted. Real repentance comes to focus on the only real permanent result of sin the loss of the Lord. Now, now think about that for just a moment before we move on to the rest of this quote. What's the real consequence of sin? It's not just pain in your own life or disappointment for those around you. It's that in a sense you've, you've lost the Lord. Now get this, we don't believe, neither does Tim Keller believe, that, that your relationship with God is so fragile that anytime you commit a sin, boom, it's just gone. Okay? We don't believe that, but, but there's a sense in which because God's a relational God, God isn't just a judge, God isn't just a scorekeeper, he's a father, this just a relationship. So anytime we, anytime we dishonor him, anytime we break his rules, anytime we say, God, I don't trust you, right? that's all what sin is, anytime we do that, th- there's, a, there's a fracture in the relationship. There's, a, in a sense, a loss of the kind of closeness we could have. That's the consequence of sin. That we should be brokenhearted over. Not that we lost money. Not that we lost our job. Not that we might lose our family. Not that we got caught. But that our relationship with God is hurt. He continues regret is all about us, how I'm being hurt, how my life is ruined, how my heart is breaking but repentance is all about God, how he has been grieved, how his nature as creator and redeemer is being trampled on, how his repeated saving actions are being trivialized and used manipulatively. So have you experienced repentance where you're grieved and you're heartbroken over how your sin has hurt God? Or are you simply living at a regret level? Sometimes people come up to me after a message or something, and they'll go, oh, that that was great. I felt so guilty. Okay, that's not my goal, right? You might think, well, you do a good job of it every week. That's not the goal. The goal is not to make you feel guilty. The goal is not to make you feel regret. The goal is not to make you feel bad. The goal is to help you see you're missing out on a closeness to God, on the blessing of life with God. That's what's at stake. And and so whatever guilt you feel or whatever regret you feel, it's designed to lead you to repentance, to lead me to repentance, to say what I really need is God himself. That's what I need. I don't want to lose him. And that's what's at stake in my sin and so the word of God comes and the word of God says here's your problem you haven't obeyed me and until you see that that's your real problem you're just going to keep going through this cycle here's the second thing that we see in this story are the seductive rivals to God so we have the surgical word of God, but then we have the seductive rivals to God. I've kind of alluded to this already, all the confusion, right? He knows some about Yahweh, he knows about the Lord, he knows some about Baal, right? He, he knows the story, but they have this altar, there's this whole seductive rivalry going on. And it's very interesting if you look at verse 25 and 26, that God doesn't just say, hey, tear down the altar to Baal, nor does he just say, hey, next to that altar to Baal, exalt, uh, raise up an altar to me. We can have two. He doesn't say that. He says, tear down one and construct this one. Why? Because you can't have two side by side. These are rivals that don't coexist. Right. This is what Jesus said when Jesus says, you cannot serve two masters. And he said, you can't serve God and money. But, but God always has a rival. But, but here's what's so interesting that you see about this. And, and we've been talking about this idolatry and these other gods that these people worshipped. And we talked about it a few weeks ago. We talked about comfort and pleasure and security and power and, and control and approval. Right? We could add to that list. We could add family. That can be an idol. We could add politics. Ooh, he better stop talking soon. We could add politics. We could add money. We could add career, right? There's all of these these things that that are competing with God. And here's what you see in this story. This This is so important. Idolatry is very rarely a full abandonment of God and a full embrace of the other idol. It's very rarely that it's almost always a blending. It's saying, I want Yahweh, but I also want this thing to bail just in case. I wanna worship and serve God, and I want a great reputation in business. I love Jesus, and I want and need the American dream. I wanna honor the Lord, he's most important, but I better have a darn good family. It's an and thing, it's a blending thing, it's syncretizing. It's not binary either or, it's a blending, do you see that? This is what makes idolatry in us so deceitful. It makes it so hard to see. It'd be easy if it was like, I'm an atheist who loves money. But we don't go there, especially as the people of God. We, we, we come here, we go, yeah, 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 I love you Lord, I love you Lord, I love you Lord but man, I really want that car. And we just, we we blend it, and it's dangerous. We worship God formally, but informally, our life revolves around other things. The thing that grips our heart, the thing that captures our attention are other things besides the Lord. The place we run to when we feel pain or difficulty are other things. We run to comfort. We run to pleasure. We go to protect ourselves. So we need some help discerning these, right? It's so blended. It's so messy. It's so hard to see. How do we discern these kind of idols? Well, here's three questions. These questions come uh, from a Harvest Bible Chapel in Michigan. I came across this worksheet they have that's tremendous in trying to help you diagnose the idols in your heart. And they ask these three questions on that worksheet. Uh, The first one is this. Am I willing to sin to get this? So this, it, whatever it is. Am I willing to sin in order to get career advancement? Am I willing to sin in order to be more well thought of by other people? Am I willing to sin in order to have a more secure, safe life? If you're willing to sin, right, that's saying, I'm going to not do what God tells me to do. I'm going to avoid what God says is the path of blessing, and I'm going to instead do this. That's an indication that something's an idol, right? Your security is an idol if it keeps you from being generous to people in need. Your career is an idol if it leads you to do shady deals that are not really very honest. Am I willing to sin to get this? Here's another way to ask the same kind of question. Am I willing to sin if I think I'm going to lose this? Maybe I already have something. know, I've got a nice home and I've got a good family. And in order to keep that, I, I just, I gotta keep up appearances and I gotta do whatever it takes. I, I can't lose this. I've worked too hard. I've come too far. I've built too much. There's too much on the line. I can't, I, can't, I, know God's telling me to, I know God's telling me to give that. I know God's telling me to do that, but I just, I can't do it. There's too much to lose. It's an idol. Here's a third thing. Do I turn to this as a refuge and comfort instead of going to God? Life gets difficult. You know, I need a vacation. I need a vacation. No, you need to pray. Maybe you need a vacation too. But, but what's your first flinch? What's your first response? Things get difficult. Things get tough. You, you, is your first flinch to go to technology and to kind of medicate yourself by, oh, what's, what's going on in Facebook? Is your first flinch to kind of get lost in the political discussion and, and to just go there because that's sort of a fun world to banter about? Or what about this? This one hits home for me. We have a, an idol. We have a category of idolatry called comfort food. I mean think about the name. Comfort food. It's saying when you're uncomfortable, when things are difficult, go here. Right? This can be anything. It can be food, it can be technology, it can be relationships. Right? You might you might be I'm going I'm to sin in order to keep this relationship. I'm going to go to this person. You know, bef- when I get in trouble, rather than pray, I'm going to call this friend and go, hey, what do you think about this? Whatever those things are, they're idolatry. And what you see in this story is this incredible blending. Now, listen, I know that up to this point, this, this has not been real fun. This hasn't been great to listen to in terms of enjoyment. But what, what I think the Lord's doing and what I'm hoping to do as hopefully his mouthpiece is to, is to help, but before we heal the wound, let's, let's make sure that we really get the junk out of it, right? This past summer, I, I learned to rollerblade and uh, many of you would have taken great delight in watching that. Um, I did most of it in this private little neighborhood in where we were staying in Ohio and uh, occasionally people would pop their head out and they'd go, you're trying so hard, that's, I'm so proud of you, you know, and it was just really embarrassing. Well, at one point when I got a little too confident, I decided to go on this longer ride while my daughter rode her bike, and uh, the first part of the ride, stupidly, was down a hill. And you can imagine how that ended with giant scrapes all up down me, right, and there's mud everywhere, and then I'm smelling, I'm like, that's not just mud, right? And, And so I'm filthy and dirty and embarrassed, you know. Well, I get back to to the place we're staying and and I didn't just put a Band-Aid over all that. I didn't just put put gauze on top of it. I had to clean it out. I had to root it out. I had to get some antiseptic and alcohol and get that out of there. And that hurt and that stung. But we need, I needed that if that wound was ever going to heal. And in the same way, that's, this is what we need. Are we really repentant or are we just full of regret? Do we realize how much these idols have synced up with our lives and we don't even see them? You could even talk about bigger picture idols of materialism and consumerism and Just a worldview that says, I'm I'm my own person. I'll do whatever I want. How much have those things crept in and synced up to our lives? Unless we we expose that, we'll never experience the healing. And yet, there is tremendous healing. There is tremendously good news in this passage. Because how how do you get rid of these idols and then decide to just serve the one true God? How do you do that? Is it just by saying, hey, idols are bad, idols are bad, idols are bad? No, it's actually, you see it here, the idol has to be replaced. You see, he doesn't just say, tear down the one to Baal, and then enough with that. He says, no, tear down the one to Baal and replace it with this one. Your love for comfort has to be replaced by a love for the God who created comfort. And so somehow we've got to have our affections changed. Thomas Chalmers, as this old Puritan, wrote this, this sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. If your affections are too caught up in the world, you need something to come in and expel it and take its place. Well, what is that? It is the promise of God. And so this is where I want to finish. Last, the sufficient promise of God. You may see the surgical word of the Lord. You may see this idolatry that's coming in, but you've got to see the sufficient promise of God. God says twice here this amazing promise. This is a promise that God says every time someone in the Bible is not sure if they can trust him. It's a promise that is over and over and over in the Bible. You could almost maybe say that the whole story of the Bible is pointing to this promise. You could for sure say that Jesus came to give this promise. What is the sufficient promise of God in this passage? It's twice. It's in verse 12. It's in verse 16. In verse 12, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, the Lord is with you. Gideon says, I don't know. I'm too small. I'm not good enough. I don't know if I can really do it. I'm filled with all this idolatry. I don't understand all these things. I don't even know if I trust you, God. Verse 16, and the Lord said to him, but I will be with you. I will be with you. That is the sufficient promise of God. That is the thing that can expel all our love for other stuff is to say, oh, God is with me. The God who made me, the God who created all of these things loves me and he's with me. This is God's trump card over and over and over In the Bible. Let me just give you a sampling. This is just a fraction of all the places that talk about this. Genesis 28, behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. Exodus 3, this is Moses. Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you. Deuteronomy 20, When you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them for the Lord your God is with you who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Joshua, the guy who followed Moses, God says to him, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Psalm 23, oh, we love Psalm 23, the faithful shepherd. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Isaiah 41, fear not for I am with you. Be not dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Jesus, to his disciples, after he has conquered Satan, sin, and death on the cross, after he has risen victoriously over death, is standing there with his disciples on the mountain, these 11 ragtag people. And he says, go into all the world, make disciples, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Acts 18 the Lord said to the Apostle Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you. Listen, God doesn't answer all our questions and he doesn't change all our circumstances but he promises to be with you. He doesn't give you everything you want but he gives you everything you need Himself. This is why Jesus came. Right? The virgin shall conceive and shall bear a son, Emmanuel, God with us. The Word, Jesus Christ, became flesh and dwelt among us. They will be His people. He will be their God. They will dwell together is the end of the story. This is what God has done in the person of Jesus. Because listen, Jesus is the only person who wasn't caught up in this blending of idolatry. He is the only one who truly served his father. And then he comes and he dies in our place and he rises and he says, listen, I can set you free and I will be with you. Yes, your problem is that you tend to regret more than repent. Yes, your problem is that you're blending these other things. Will you just see that I have been so eager to know and to love you? Will you believe, will you trust that I'm with you? And will you let that be enough? This summer on our sabbatical uh, We were in Ohio for a good chunk of time and uh, we went to Cedar Point. Some of you have been to Cedar Point. This is the Millennium Force. Millennium Force, uh, that thing on the left there is a 300 foot drop, top speed 93 miles an hour. And we went there and my then six year old Caitlin was about a quarter of an inch taller than the must be above this line. I said, come on honey, this will be great, let's do this. And she said, I don't know. That looks really steep. I said, oh, well, but you're buckled in and you're not gonna fly off. And you know, and I tried to explain all the reasoning, all the stuff, that didn't help. I don't know. And I said, I'll be with you. There we are in line. Everyone in line's like, are you crazy? What is, is is she supposed to be on here? And by this point, I'm probably more nervous than she is at this point. But what got her on the ride was knowing, I'll be with you. We'll do this together. And I don't know what you're going through. And I don't know what kind of explanations you'd want for it. And maybe God's given you some. Maybe he hasn't. But here's what I know. Is he says, I'll be with you. Don't give up hope. Don't lose heart. I'll be with you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a good father and that you are with us. God, I pray that wherever we are and whatever we're experiencing, that we would experience your fatherly care. God, I pray that you would lead us towards true repentance, digging out the root of sin, not being happy to live with it and have it blend in and muddy our lives. But would we be eager to serve